I was just a writer at this point. So yeah, I got okay. fired. Like I was one of the people who got let go. And so mm -hmm. for me, to be honest, that was actually one of the best things that could ever happen to me because I was looking to back, get back to Medellin. And so when I got let go as part of this big round of layoffs, I was like, this is my opportunity. And so I almost immediately, I booked a one-way plane ticket to... Welcome, y'all. We have Rob Hoffman with us today. So happy to have him here. He is the founder and CEO of Contact Studios. They are a content as a service business. They create video and SEO content for brands like Shopify and many more. They work with both big and small brands. They work similar to productized design companies, but instead of providing an unlimited design, they provide unlimited video and SEO content as a monthly subscription service. Um, Rob was born in Toronto and interestingly moved to Medellin, where he then started the company. He has been bootstrapped 100% and profitable from day one. I'm so looking forward to learning more. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for being here with us. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. I would love to start by inviting you to tell us in your own words, who is Rob today? Never want to assume, so always want to give you the <laughs> chance to describe yourself. Absolutely. Well, I think you did a lot of the work for me. Um, so this might be a bit repetitive, but I am Rob Hoffman. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Contact Studios. Uh, what we do is we create video uh, and SEO blog content as a monthly subscription service. And as you mentioned, we've worked with companies like Shopify, First Media, RBC Bank, uh, and many more um, to kind of go over, you know, more of the professional side of things. First, the need that we fill or why clients like working with us is because they get a personalized content strategy, totally managed content production, and access to a dedicated content team for one fixed monthly rate, which costs less than one senior hire. And then to kind of put aside the professional stuff and talk a little bit more about me personally, uh, aside from Contact Studios, me personally, as you mentioned, I'm from Toronto, Canada. I live in Medellin, Colombia. I speak English and Spanish fluently, uh, and I love nature, travel, adventure, and I'm a huge podcast nerd, so I am very excited to uh, be on your podcast today. That's right. I think we connected because we both rest in the same way. We both rest by going on hikes and being in flow outside, out and about, and doing things that get our minds into flow state, and then also loving the podcast nerd aspect. Okay. So kind of given who Rob is today, I am curious to understand more about how and what influenced the person you are today. So I like to ask the question, what are some formative experiences and could be from any period of your life? Yeah, so I got to be honest, the first 19 years of my life were pretty uneventful, uh, but the next 10 years were pretty exciting. And so the reason is that I grew up in a suburb of Toronto, which is kind of one of the most wonderfully boring places on earth. And mm. I say that not as a bad thing. Uh, Toronto is, I think, literally the most multicultural city in the world. And mm -hmm. the reason that so many people come to Toronto from other parts of the world is because they want stability, uh, safety, comfort. And so that makes Toronto a very ideal place if you're looking to 
raise a family, but it's not necessarily an ideal place if you're a young person seeking adventure. And so growing up, you know, my entire life, I wanted to be a journalist. Uh, I even went to university to study journalism. But after one year, I kind of became totally disillusioned with the university system. I found it just very boring and useless and expensive. Uh, and um, on the other side, I also had probably read one too many Jack Kerouac books. <laughs> and so uh, my best friends and I, two of which are my co-founders to this day, mm. we decided to drop out. So we dropped out of university and we went to live on the road. And so and where was that? So that was in Canada. Um, I went to university in London, Ontario. But we, we, when we dropped out and we decided to kind of live on the road, we spent the summer hitchhiking out west. And so we were kind of living out of our backpacks, sleeping under the stars. You know, it was all very romantic and kind of beat generation-esque. Uh, and what happened was along the way, we met a ton of interesting people who were also living on the road, uh, kind of living this niche vagabond lifestyle. And they had a lot more experience than us living this type of lifestyle. So they were living in tricked out sprinter vans or on sales, uh, sailboats, or in some cases in these kind of self-sustaining, lawless uh, communities on the peripheries of society. And so one day we were sitting on a beach, me and my two other now uh, co-founders, and we realized that there was no media company that was telling the stories of these people who took the road less traveled. And mm. so when we got back to Toronto, we launched a media company that was focused on unconventional lifestyles. And it ended up actually being a hit. So before we knew yeah. it, we had a full editorial team on staff. We had an office in Toronto and we grew it to 2 million monthly readers. Amazing. Wow. It's what were some of the interesting stories? Because it sounds like you're covering all interesting stories. So did any stories stand out that you still remember of living the unconventional path less traveled? Yeah, one really interesting story was actually one of these quote unquote lawless communities on the peripheries of society that I mentioned before. Uh, when we had got to Tofino, which is this small town on the edge of the earth, it's on Vancouver Island, and so mm. and on the very west end side. So mm -hmm. it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. It's uh, rainforest and, and beach. And mm -hmm. um, in this small kind of town of Tofino, there was this kind of hippie commune. And in this hippie commune, there were people, it was self-sustaining. People grew food for, like from the ground. Um, wow. And one of the most interesting parts was that it was owned by this very charismatic uh, old kind of hippie guy named Michael Poole and people could live in this kind of community for free and it was this really interesting large plot of land with these long boardwalks that would snake through the forest and mm. he would let you live there for free and if you worked for him on your property he would actually pay you in magic mushrooms <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> it was a very interesting situation. We just thought, wow, like what a great story in this uh, yeah. 
yeah, this this guy, Michael Poole, and nobody knows about it. And we we really wanted to tell stories like those. On the back of Burning Man and everyone having come back from Burning Man, it kind of reminds me of like a northern Burning Man minus the things that you set up and the burning of things, but like the sustainable <laughs> living and the the drugs and the hippiness. Um, so, so fascinating. So then how did that go? Did you and your co-founders build that for a couple of years? What did you learn? And how did that set you on this path that you're on today? So in the beginning, we felt pretty cool because we went from being university dropouts to now employing people with, you know, master's degrees. And we had this yeah. office in, in Toronto. We were like, oh, we're pretty, oh my gosh, pretty heck cool. yeah. <laughs> we were not. We, we figured were, it out. <laughs> yeah, we did not figure it out. That was totally wrong. Um, <laughs> we So the main problem is we had no idea how to monetize the traffic that we were getting. Mm-hmm. We had grown it, uh, you know, to 2 million monthly readers. It was going really well from a readership and audience growth perspective. But we had no idea how to monetize the traffic we were getting. And uh, in the end, kind of because of that, there, we didn't raise like a, a ton of money for this. It was only like a couple hundred thousand dollars from mm-hmm. these investors, but because we didn't know how to monetize, that kind of gave them power uh, where they wanted to take, they wanted to take the magazine in a direction that creatively we were just not a fan of. And so we ended up kind of moving a different direction. But mm-hmm. luckily what happened was because we grew this uh, unconventional lifestyle magazine, we caught the attention of a young CEO in Toronto who had just raised a $4 million seed round. And what he was trying to do was build the world, essentially the world's largest cannabis media company. And so he wow, hired- Wow, what is that? Um, it is exactly what it sounds like. It's it basically like a, a cannabis media company, I guess, kind of like a new age high times. Uh, okay, maybe okay, a good okay. Way of describing it. Got it. Because my first thought was, is it advertising cannabis products? Is it- like what the companies that are selling cannabis would come to to distribute, but got it. Exactly. It's basically if you have cannabis products that you're trying to sell, we have a like articles that are getting a ton of traffic mm-hmm. via SEO. We have a large audience across social channels, uh, email newsletter, and we're basically able to advertise your products to this community right. of cannabis consumers. And so, uh, but this was in the early days when we started, right? Mm-hmm. This was... The CEO was yeah, trying to grow this company. And um, how many Canada years? Was, when was that? Was that 2000? And I think it was around 20. Gosh, I think around 2016, 2017. It was literally like right when cannabis was getting legalized in Canada because right. it's 100% legal in Canada. It's just like alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was right around that time. So, like inflection point, all systems running. And did he end up recruiting you guys? He ended up recruiting us uh, because of the kind of notoriety that we had from building this unconventional lifestyle magazine. And what happened Mm. is, so Mm. my two other, I I have three co-founders and two of my co-founders are named uh, Tyler Fife and Connor Fife, they're brothers. And the Connor, Tyler, and myself got hired to essentially run the editorial team at this company. And I got hired personally as a writer. And mm-hmm. it ended up also being at the same company where we met the SEO wizard who would later become our fourth co-founder, whose name is Mike Terry, but that's kind of later on. At this time, I was just a writer for this company. Again, I always wanted to be a journalist. I always thought that was the route I was going to take. I never saw myself as an entrepreneur. 
And so for the first six months that I was working for this company, they actually let me work remotely. Mm -hmm. And me being someone who liked to pursue adventure, I took the opportunity to spend those six months living in Medellin, Colombia. Mm. And I learned to speak Spanish and um, that was always something I wanted to do. And I just love uh, Latin America. I think it's you know a very special part of the world. And so I always, I, I took the opportunity to live in Medellin, Colombia those six months. And surprise, surprise, I fell in love with, uh, with the country and, and with the city of Medellin. So I hear it's gorgeous and I don't think anyone can blame you. But what inspired specifically Colombia in Latin America for you? So basically, when I was um, in my early 20s, I did a two-month backpacking trip through Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, and Chile. And I didn't have time to go to Colombia. And, okay. uh, but in every single country, in every city, in every hostel that I was staying at, everybody that I met was like, you didn't You should didn't go check to it out. Yeah, yeah, and I heard that so many times that it ended up just getting annoying to the point where I was like, I need to go and see this place. <laughs> and so yeah, when I had the opportunity, because I was allowed to work remotely, I took that opportunity and I was like, I'm moving to Medellin for, for six months. Amazing. And what was that like for you? I mean, it was, it was one of the most formative experiences of my entire life. Um, I, yeah, I totally fell in love with the the language, the culture, the people, the weather, the nature, uh, all that. And so for me, like I just, all I wanted in life was basically to live in this place. But unfortunately, what kind of ended up happening was I had to move back to Toronto because the company that I was working for, they ended up getting this like big fancy office in like the trendiest part of Toronto and everyone kind of needed, that was working remote and needed to come and work in at the office. Mm -hmm. So I had to move back to Toronto, uh, but like I was miserable in Toronto, right? Like I never really wanted to live in Toronto. I don't like the cold, the lack of nature <laughs> uh, and the familiarity as well. Like I'd grown up there my entire life. So it was just kind of boring to me. And I had always dreamed about getting back to, uh, getting back to Columbia. Yeah. And so what happened what it was kind of like a be careful what you wish for situation though right because what happened is the company ended up falling on hard times mm -hmm. and they ended up having to let go of basically like 90 percent of the staff in a single day oh my goodness yeah and so but were any of you and your co-founders affected you were you involved in the decision making i think that's always a tough period and can you tell us more about going through that 100 percent. i was just a writer at this point so yeah, I got okay. fired. Like I was one of the people who got let go. And so mm -hmm. for me, to be honest, that was actually one of the best things that could ever happen to me because I was looking to back, get back to Medellin. And so when I got let go as part of this big round of layoffs, I was like, this is my opportunity. And so I almost immediately, I booked a one-way plane ticket to uh, Medellin. Okay. And you had savings that you brought with you, right? Yeah, so kind of what happened was before I had left, um, my again, my other co-founders and I, we kind of, we were sitting around at a bar having a beer and we had this idea for an amazing company. We saw that the world of media and uh, marketing were merging, but the problem is, is that most marketers have no idea how to grow a media company. It's just not within their their skill set, but, but we mm -hmm. did. So we wanted to start uh, a company that could kind of bridge that gap. You hear these days, 
you know, every founder with a, with a Twitter account says like every company now is a media company. And that's kind of this like cliche thing, but (laughs) at that time we were like, this is the way that the world's going and we're going to try to grow this company. I obviously was like, okay, I'm going to try to do this. We're going to work on this together, but all remotely, I'm going to move back to Medellin. And again, I booked this one way flight to Medellin and I had nothing lined up and I had just my life savings. It wasn't very much. And the goal was kind of to get to Medellin and just build up this company, which became Contact Studios before my money ran out. Ran out. Mm-hmm. And what happened was the first six months that I had spent living in Medellin, the very first time that I, I lived in Medellin, instead of going and living in the touristy area, um, I decided to live in kind of like a more local, like working class kind of blue collar neighborhood because I didn't want to go to Medellin to hang out with a bunch of other Canadians, right? I wanted to actually kind of, um, yeah, like soak up the culture and immerse myself. Right, get immersed. Yeah. So I ended up making a bunch of friends that are, you know, local and they are from Medellin. They live here. And so when I moved back. um, You already had these friends built in. Exactly. I had these friends built in and I just wanted to live with my friends. And the problem was, is that my friends, the neighborhood that they are from and that they live in was what every well-meaning taxi driver would describe (laughs) to me as a dangerous neighborhood. And And what did they mean by that, Rob? (laughs) Well, I think that most people conflate dangerous with poor. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily a dangerous neighborhood. I think that it's just not an economically like well-to-do neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so I never had any issues of moving there. And the other thing was that in this neighborhood, rent cost $70 a month for me. I was paying $70 a month for rent, which is- Wow, I'm so jealous. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it was kind of perfect because I was, yeah, I was living on my life savings trying to build up this company, right? But um, so having cheap rent was great. The downside to that was we had no hot water. There were like, you know, holes in the in the walls and in, in the ceilings. And our next door neighbor were literally a gang of like motorcycle thieves and uh, drug dealers who would throw like parties uh, multiple times wow. per week. And uh, tell me about these neighbors. Did you befriend them? What was your approach? What were your interactions like? I did have a few interactions for sure. I mean, you get to know people in your neighborhood and that's kind of one yeah. of the things I love about this neighborhood is there's a sense of community. Um, and look, I didn't become best friends with like the local like motorcycle thieves and gangsters, but of course we'd, I'd walk by and we would kind of say hello and give the handshake and hey, how's it going and all that. Um, for the most part, you kind of just ignore it and and just kind of let them do what they're going to do for example they'd have massive ragers until like 5 a.m mm-hmm. on like a wednesday oh and you're not going to go and, <laughs> you're not going to go and tell these people like hey keep it down <laughs> <laughs> so um that was a really interesting uh situation it is interesting i'm so glad you bring it up uh again i think kind of my worldview is like humans are humans right there's there's like no like good and bad people there are people and there are people who are born into circumstances and are making the best of their circumstances and so i really appreciate you sharing that 
Um, and at least when we think about like we're talking about poor neighborhoods or not good neighborhoods, a lot of the time, like it, obviously there's a ton of nuance, but a lot of the time folks are just making the best of their circumstances, trying to survive. And at the end of the day, folks all have similar needs, which is to be safe, to have food, to have like loved ones safe and all of this. And um, I think most people are doing their best, best at that. So it's yeah, always exactly right. It's always good to get to know the folks and understand what the motivations are, what, like how did you get here and all of this. Um, I also love so much that you prioritize getting to know the locals. Uh, and I think I'd love to hear just your, because I we, we both know so many folks that travel to a place and um, maybe don't feel as safe or don't feel as comfortable. And just in your case, you did this so wonderfully, it looks like, uh, and obviously various degrees of comfort for different people. But just given your experience, do you have any advice or suggestions for maybe assimilating into a different culture for folks that are moving to a new place that you found helpful for yourself? Well, you kind of said it best where it's like people all over the world, it's like we have different cultures, but we all want the same things. We want love and happiness and to be accepted. And so um, I think if you arrive somewhere that's out of your comfort zone, maybe you don't know the language that well yet. Uh, I think a good attitude, a smile, being open, those things will take you a very long way uh, in many parts of the world. I do find that in Canada, in the US, um, we can be a little bit more closed off, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to kind of move away from that part of the world. Mm -hmm. um, but in many other parts of the world, people are very open and accepting. And I had such an incredible experience where I was accepted by uh, you know my friend group here, despite in the beginning, barely speaking Spanish. Mm -hmm. I'm fluent now, but I couldn't imagine, you know, in Toronto and many parts of the US, if you arrive and you don't speak English and you're trying to make friends, like people kind of right. want nothing to do with you. But here people were patient with me and, um, and uh, again, I think and... it just, yeah, they're very kind. And, and I had just such an, a, a wonderful experience. And again, I think it just comes down to having that positive attitude and you kind of, um, yeah. you get what you attract, right? So, Yeah, absolutely. It's also wonderful for learning the new language, just getting straight up assimilated and surrounding yourself with it. So kudos, oh. huge kudos there. I think that's so great. Thank you very much. It's awesome. Um, okay, so you're here, you're with your friends, you are um, at the same time attempting to build and get it off the ground. So what happens next? Right. So what happened was, despite my best efforts, um, eight months later, we still weren't making money. So I had basically failed at my mission to move here and learn how to make money with, with this business um, and, and, and live in Medellin. So my savings had all but evaporated at this point. And if I wanted to stay in Medellin, then I needed to make some money. And coincidentally, just at this time, I got a message from that same startup that had fired me the year prior, the cannabis media company. <laughs> and after falling on some hard times, they were rebuilding the company and they needed writers again. So they asked okay. me if I was interested in working with them because I was actually their top writer back mm -hmm. when I did work with them. 
and I accepted the job. But at this point, I didn't see myself as just a writer anymore. I wanted to grow a great company and I saw myself more as an entrepreneur. So when I joined the company again for the second time, I started seeking out ways that I could help the company thrive. Um, I proposed new revenue opportunities to the CEO. I asked if I could help sell because uh, I also am good at sales. And I think the CEO, he saw me as a writer and not as you know, like a business person. And mm -hmm. so he was skeptical. And he basically told me to put all of my like brilliant ideas into an actual plan before I could start selling. Uh, and so that's exactly what I did is I put together this 30 slide deck where I outlined all of the company's missed revenue opportunities, how I thought that we could add an additional, you know, seven figures or more of, of yearly revenue, all the products that I thought that we could sell that we weren't selling. And when I finished, finished presenting this, sorry, when I finished presenting this uh, revenue proposal to the company, like the whole team like started clapping. And I think the, the CEO was kind <laughs> of like, okay, maybe, maybe we should let this guy sell after all. So he was like, okay, go ahead. You can, you can start selling. You can start actioning some of this plan. And it turned out that I was pretty good at selling. Uh, and on my first mm -hmm. day, I closed like a $15,000 deal, which was yes. uh, one of the, uh, thank you very much. And um, yeah, for, from there, like while sales were good and, and things were starting to pick up and I was starting to get my footing in the company and the CEO was starting to see me more as somebody who could be a leader uh, within the company, I had a new challenge. And the mm -hmm. challenge was I was doing sales, but I was doing it out of this apartment, this $70 a month uh, apartment, um, just a very modest little place. And I would struggle to find where to position my computer on a Zoom call in a way that looked legitimate. Mm -hmm. Right now, as an example, you can tell I have like a very pro uh, procured like background. Beautiful background. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's important, like we all know now that it's important to have like a kind of legitimate looking Zoom setup if you're going to be doing sales calls. But at the time, like we just, I, I was living at this apartment and I kind of just imagined my clients or people I did sales calls with being like, yeah, you know, this, this all sounds good, but if you can make us money, like, why are you living in a favela? And so like the best I could do is basically there, the best that I could do in terms of making a somewhat legitimate setup was there was this really crappy Superman poster that we had on our wall. And again, mm -hmm. the wall is just like all unfinished concrete. And so what I would do is just take this Superman poster and like put and it up it behind up. me and kind of like prop up my computer on my legs yeah. and sit like cross-legged on my bed so that I'd have like somewhat of a legitimate background, this like stupid yeah. Superman poster um, <laughs> that I guess kind of became my like good luck charm. And that was the only thing I could do to make myself look like somewhat legitimate. Um, and it actually kind of worked because that year I went on to sell half a million dollars of, uh, of marketing campaigns. Mm -hmm. And so now that you established yourself as a legitimate salesperson, more entrepreneurial thinking, did you 
do it in-house of that other company or did you then break free? How did those beginnings go? So we were basically, what had happened was we were growing contact studios at the same time that, you know, I was working at this other company. Uh, my other co-founders were working at um, other companies as well. We were kind of just trying to do it on the side. Yeah. And I ended up growing uh, within this uh, cannabis media company that, that I'm telling you about. Um, again, just like showing more leadership. Uh, eventually, I, I moved up in the company from being a writer to editor-in-chief to head of content and eventually uh, chief operating officer. And Amazing. so it was kind of like this business boot camp for me. It was yeah. a very intense startup environment working at this company. And I cut my teeth on business and how to grow a company. Uh, it was kind of like a business boot camp. And I, I used a lot of those learnings and applied them to contact studios uh, to kind of help get that off the ground, uh, you know, with the help of my other co-founders. What are some of those learnings? Well, I think it's just basic stuff, right? Which is like how to do a proper sales call, how to position your product, how to price your product, how to, um, yeah, like market your product or, or, or service, how to work with your clients, how to work with your team, what project management tools do you use? How do you communicate with your clients? It's just all these kind of small things that add up. Yeah. And so, uh, um, yeah, from that point on, basically, like I was growing these two companies uh, at once. Um, this is throughout the pandemic. And eventually what had happened was when contact hit about a million dollars of ARR, I said, okay, I can't be splitting my focus across these two companies. Exactly. And that's when I, this was in 2021. That's when I came on to contact full-time as a CEO and, uh, the rest is history. Okay, so I didn't realize this piece. So it sounds like you were you were both full time at the cannabis media company, correct? So Where I was full. Had... I was full time, and my other co-founders were were working because this is after the the layoff. So they had all gotten other jobs. Um, okay, so you were yeah. full time at the cannabis media company where you had risen up to a COO, while you and your co-founders, who were not at the cannabis media company, you all together were building Contact Studios. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, like we see so many of these stories too, right? Of folks starting a company as a side hustle while keeping their main job where it's not always that that was the plan. Like in your case, you had attempted to build contact studios on your own. It didn't work out. And then you went back and ended up getting all of these skills that ended up being so useful to the journey. So it, another example of it's never a straight road and all the wines are, are helpful. Like all of these moments are, are useful. Tell me about your first few customers then at contact. How did y'all get those? What or who? Yeah. So a lot of it was very organic and it was from connections that I had, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, for example, one of our first clients was actually a friend of a friend who they were they operate a cbd company they sell uh like cbd products and they had needed seo at the time 
Um, mm -hmm. We had gotten connected and I just basically went through the, the sales process where I explained, hey, this is what we do. Here's our process. Here's why we are legitimate. Here is the experience that our director of SEO has. Um, do you want to work with us? And luckily enough, uh, they took a risk on us yeah. and uh, worked with us. From there, a lot of it just comes, as anybody growing an agency type business knows, through referral and word of mouth, which if I were to start again, I would probably do things very differently. But that is how we uh, got our first few clients. Great. I'm glad we're talking about this because I think for many businesses, like agency businesses or B2B businesses, it's always like, where do you get your first 10 customers? And is it, are you doing cold outreach? Are you doing warm intros? Are you doing friends, like helping friends first and then referrals? So it sounds like your first one was a friend who had a business that needed your support. And then it sounds like after that, like one to 10 or like two to 10, were those also friends or a combination of friends and referrals? It was basically all referrals. And just to make this very mm. tactical and like actionable and useful to the people listening to the podcast, uh, one, there's a few pieces of advice that I would give if you're trying to get your first um, 10 customers. Number one is a lot of people under index on brand in the beginning because they don't see mm. it as important. They kind of see it as this like mm, nebulous, like hard to pin down thing like brand. What does that even mean? Um, but in the beginning, I do think it is very important for you to have a website that is well-designed, well-put-together. You look like a big company. Part of becoming a big company is first you have to act as if you have to look like a big company so that when you do get referrals or when people do find you, whether it is from outbound, uh, inbound marketing, and I can get into that in a moment, they see you as being legitimate. Mm -hmm. So step number one, I think, is like, put a legitimate website together with solid branding that is designed well. Um, and in the beginning, unless you get lucky where you have people within your network, and I, I think that most people do have people in their network that they can kind of tap into to become those first customers and ideally have your first customers be paying customers like they were for us. If that's not the case, I think it's the classic Find people in your network who uh, have the need that you're trying to service and just start by doing free work for them so that you can get those case studies, the, those uh, testimonials and social proof. Um, in terms of outbound and, and inbound marketing and how do you get uh, your first clients, I, if I could do it again, I would start building an audience and producing content and publishing content essentially from day one. I think if you do not yet have an established business, then you can do the classic build in public and you can do that on Twitter, on LinkedIn, uh, video content on YouTube, on TikTok, on Instagram. And that's going to mm -hmm. kind of generate awareness for what you do. But you can also talk about things such as your philosophy for filling your service. So what is our philosophy when it comes to creating great video content? And that can attract clients. What is our strategy or frameworks or storytelling ingredients that we use to tell a great story? And you can start publishing these things that have nothing to even do with case studies because you might not have those yet and start to attract inbound interest. And it can happen very quickly if you do a good job of creating content. A lot of people make the mistake that 
building an audience and actually generating leads from that audience is something that takes a lot of time. And it does to build up and compound. But if you put out quality content out there and learn how to distribute it, you can get a ton of inbound leads very quickly. And I wish that we would have done that earlier on um, in the journey of our company. Essentially positioning yourself as the expert. So folks that are looking for this type of information find you and then associate you with this expert status and then come to you via inbound. Exactly. Yeah, if you think about it, it's pretty simple. It's like you determine what is the type of person who is your ideal buyer. So for example, we're creating videos. Uh, an ideal buyer is a B2B SaaS company because they are really looking to invest into their demand generation efforts. So now I think, what is content that could help that type of person um, or would appeal to that type of person and what they're trying to achieve? Then you create that content, you publish it, you see what works, you see what doesn't, and you iterate based on your results. And you make sure that you have a proper funnel set up. And what I mean by this is you have a landing page on your website where it is easy to book a call with you and you can link to that landing page from your content. So on LinkedIn, what you'll see me doing is I publish a piece of content and then in the comments, I have a link that goes to a landing page where it's just my Calendly essentially where people can go and book a call with us very easily and you wanna reduce friction. So at every stage mm -hmm. in the process, you're looking for ways to reduce friction. What specifically do I mean by reduce friction? I mean, number one, provide social proof if you can via testimonials, via case studies. This will help people answer the question, why should I even trust this company to begin with? Another piece of friction is like, if you are early on in, earlier on in your journey, don't make your leads jump through a million hoops, which is like right now as an example, we are more focused on qualified pipeline rather than just getting any lead in the door because we want to make sure we're working with the right companies and qualifying out the ones that we don't want to work with. In the beginning, don't have any kind of qualifying process where you're making your leads fill out a type form or anything like that, because in the beginning, you just want to talk to as many people as, as possible. And then from there, it's really just an iterative process of looking at what's working and what's not and just doubling down on the things that work and cutting the things that don't. Yeah, getting to product market fit. Love that you started telling us about this. How did you how did you find product market fit? What was working and not working for you? I mean, I think number one, it's you start with a hypothesis, right? Where you go, I believe that this service or product is the best possible fit for this type of buyer, right? Where it's like, this is the type of company that has the exact problem that my service can solve. From there, it's really just about testing it out. So what that means is, again, whether it's you are doing outbound sales, so you are targeting people that are within that uh, specific like ideal customer persona. So let's just use an example. Let's say that you're targeting B2B SaaS companies and you want to be targeting people who have a title like head of demand generation, right? You're going to find those people. And if you're doing cold outbound, you're going to be doing cold outbound to those types of people. And if it works, great. If not, then maybe you're not targeting the right ideal customer persona. Same with inbound marketing is you're going to create content after researching this ideal customer persona, seeing what are their problems, what are their goals, what, languages, what language do they use, incorporating those learnings into your content 
and then seeing if you're getting inbound lead flow from that. Once you have solved the problem of actually getting leads and getting people on the phone, it's gonna come down to, and, you, and once you start actually closing your first uh, leads and you, you're now, you have clients to work with, it's really just about, are these clients happy? Are they sticking with you? Do you have a high churn rate or a low churn rate? For us, it was really like, this is the exact SEO and video service that we would want. Like this mm -hmm. is what we think is gonna provide a ton of value to this particular ideal customer persona and that we ourselves would want. And this is a fair price we believe for this. You go and you test it. Fortunately, we were able to sell those services pretty easily. So that tells us, okay, we have something that people want. Mm -hmm. And then it's about, okay, are your clients sticking with you for a long period of time? Fortunately, we have a very low churn rate and our clients stick with us for, you know, we have clients who have been with us for three, four years now. Um, and I, I would say there's not a single client of ours that has churned uh, before like six months. We have a low churn rate that tells us that our product is actually doing a good job of providing ongoing value uh, yeah. to that, um, you know, ideal customer persona. So coming from zero to 10 customers to finding product market fit to now in the growth phase, it sounds like what you're describing, like you're getting a ton of organic growth. What are your growth activities? We are focused on creating amazing content. Hmm. We believe in investing into marketing channels that compound and provide leverage over time. What does this mean? If you are doing outbound, there is a direct correlation between your inputs and your outputs. You send a hundred emails. Garbage in, garbage out. Yes, exactly. And let's say that 1% of the number of emails you send turn into a lead. It's like, the way to scale that up is you have to do more of that thing, which requires more resources. On the flip side, if you're creating content, the inputs are not directly related to the outputs. And what that means is that I might, in the beginning, let's say that I create a LinkedIn post or a YouTube video, and let's say that I spend like one day working on that. In the beginning, I might get no leads from that. The next time I do it, I might get two leads from that. Six months, 12 months down the road, once I've established myself and built up an audience through this content, I can put in that same amount of time or less to create that exact same video or that exact same blog article or that exact same LinkedIn post. And I might get 20 leads from that. So now all of a sudden I have leverage and I have also something that I own. There's nothing that you really own when you're doing yeah. pursuing marketing channels like cold outbound. If you invest in the content, you're essentially building your reputation. And that is something that you will carry with you for life. And that is something that will grow and compound. And it's almost like any agency business, they're gonna tell you that probably at least in the beginning and normally just in general, referrals and word of mouth continues to be one of their main sources of, of uh, like lead flow. Growth channels. Yeah. yeah, growth channels. Thank you. And so what is content? Like what is building an audience? It's basically just like amplifying and applying scale to a referral or word of mouth uh, 
um, growth channel. Business. Business. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Awesome. So I kind of want to come back, given where you are today, and ask, so where is the business now? What can you tell us about operationally how y'all are doing? We are still very small. We're growing quickly. We have about 25 team members. Um, and we are actually just about to relaunch a new website and new rebrand. So we're very excited about that. By the time this podcast comes out, it should be live. Um, and we are just, Amazing. again, focused on creating the best content in the world. I think that um, right now, especially with the kind of like, with AI and mm -hmm. with content becoming a more popular growth channel, there is this wave of mediocrity and there is so much content out there that is just garbage. You can tell it was written by ChatGPT or is just spun <laughs> up without a lot of thought. And so I actually think that there, there is an amazing opportunity right now for companies who do want to take the time to produce great content to build a moat around their business. Because right now, the world does not need more content. What the world needs is better content. And so that's what we're focused on. We're focused on creating incredible content for our clients and incredible content for ourselves. That's amazing. That's such a cool mission. I'm intrigued by, since this is your world, you're living, breathing, making great content. What to you makes good, unique content? There's a few different things. Number one is knowing how to tell a great story. And this is why there are so many companies out there where they will take a, an approach to content where they are trying to achieve scale before they achieve quality. And mm. what I mean by that is they're thinking in terms of, okay, I want to do video uh, content. How can I just create as much as possible? I want to just get to 100 videos published as fast as possible. So they forget completely about telling a great story or providing useful information or entertaining the user. And they just take these kind of growth hacks where maybe they'll spin up a podcast um, and they'll use some AI tool to like make cut downs. Mm -hmm. And they're like, cool, I can create like a podcast. It takes one hour per week. I just hop on with one of my uh, co-founders and we kind of shoot the shit. And then I just use some kind of AI tool to create these cutdowns that I can distribute. Well, the thing that's wrong with that is that number one, these AI tools, they're not even, they're not actually editing your content. They're just creating cutdowns and transcribing. What editing actually is, what good content is, is making creative decisions within the context of a story. And if you're a good editor, if you're a good producer, creative director, you know how to create uh, content, there are a number of ingredients, storytelling ingredients, storytelling frameworks uh, that you are going to use to tell a great story that simply cannot be achieved by, again, just pumping out some mass AI-produced content. And I can go into a little bit more of examples of what these storytelling ingredients are, if you'd like, um, or, you know. Yeah, what, maybe kind of, you yeah. can give us a couple of examples before we wrap up today. 100%. So one, so I love this one, which is 
if you want to tell a great story, you need to have three storytelling ingredients. You need to have an inciting incident, you need to have conflict, and you need to have motivation. What is an example of these three things? Let's use Harry Potter because everybody knows that. The inciting mm. incident in Harry Potter is that Harry is vi visited by Hagrid and wants to take Harry to a wizarding school. So Harry discovers he's a wizard. The conflict, it is Voldemort wants to take over the world and you know, kill all the mudbloods. Yeah. The motivation is that Harry wants to save his friends and the world, right? So how do you now take inciting incident, conflict, and motivation and apply that to, let's say, like a, a B2B style video? Well, what you're going to see out there, the content that people currently create, which is very boring, would sound something like this. I'm going to show you the best three techniques to write a better sales email. Does that sound interesting to you? Like, does that sound entertaining? No. Does not sound entertaining to me. So It sounds generic and like all the emails that you get, the spam emails. Exactly. So why would anyone in their right mind want to watch that? So what you want to do is you want to use these storytelling ingredients, inciting incident, conflict, and motivation to package educational content within entertainment. And so here's an example for this exact same video. We're not going to go, we're not going to open the video and go, I'm going to show you the best three techniques to write a better sales email. I'm going to open the video by saying, this was the worst cold email I ever received. And that is your inciting incident. Now I'm so curious to open and see what this email was. <laughs> Thank you for humoring me. But uh, No, and great, it's, great it's a, example. Right, so it's a bit more interesting. It grabs attention. That's your yeah. inciting incident. What is the conflict? The conflict in this video is that Bob is the sales rep who wrote the email. And Bob is your coworker who you really like. You like Bob. You don't want him to get fired. So Bob needs to learn how to write a better sales email. Oh, no. What's now I actually care. Now, now you I'm actually care. You're invested. So your attention has been grabbed. Now you're invested in the story or you're I'm invested like, in oh, Bob. Oh, no, Bob. We got to help Bob. Okay. We love, we love Bob, right? Bob's yeah. awesome. So what's your motivation? Preventing Bob from getting fired by rewriting the email for him. Yes. And that's how you create a great piece of video content. Oh, man, that was super, super useful. Uh, I think I can certainly use that in my communication. I feel like everyone listening can benefit from that. So that was gold. Thank you so much, Rob. I want to end, though, by asking you, and everyone can check out Rob and Contact Studio for more on content, and I'm sure he has many more tips. But I want to end on this note, Rob. You mentioned, or we talked about your journey to building Contact Studio and um, I love, I'm sorry, I love the fact that it wasn't linear because I think it's always makes sense looking back, but moving forward, lots of things don't always make sense. And you were working on it the first time in Medellin. I'm sorry, I'm not pronouncing it right. Uh, and it didn't work out. You went back to your old job, learned a ton there and built it on the side and eventually worked out. What are lessons that you pull from that and what would you what would you tell maybe a younger version of yourself or other listeners who may be in a similar situation as you were uh to to keep going like what what inspirational words would you leave with them from your experience 
Inspirational words. Um, I think. Or just that, your lessons learned. Yeah. So what I'll say for inspiration is this is I never thought that I would be an entrepreneur. This was never the path that I was going to take. And so I think a lot of people out there, they look at the competition, these people who maybe went to Stanford and they wanted to, <laughs> their entire lives wanted to grow a company. Um, don't worry, like you can still grow a successful company even if you hadn't been working on this since you were like six years old. Um, yeah. So there's my, my little injection of, of inspiration. Anyone can it, do it. Yeah, I mean, I think it is not... It's difficult, but it's not as difficult as people make it seem. I think a lot of people have a tendency to try to make it more difficult than it is because it serves their best interest because you're almost gatekeeping and trying to keep people uh, from competing with you. And because it mm. obviously plays up to your own ego being like, oh, building a business is so tough. And guess what? It is tough, but it's also tough just you know, trying to work and have career progression at any other job. Uh, oh, yeah. Most things in life are tough. So. That's kind of number one. I think number two, there's this great quote where it's like, if you learn how to build and you learn how to sell, then you're unstoppable. So learn how to create and then learn how to sell. I also think one thing that's really benefited me is that I didn't do this alone. Like there are, there's myself and then there are three other co-founders. And I'm very fortunate for that because we all have wildly different skill sets. And we have co-founders who are very good at selling, good at operations, and good at fulfillment. And mm. if you can check those three boxes where it's like, I am going to work with a team in the beginning, I am going to recruit co-founders or whatever it is. If you have somebody who is a very good practitioner, so they're very good at fulfilling the work, for example, our uh, Mike Terry, our director of SEO, is world-class uh, practitioner in SEO. You have somebody who is strong in operations, which means that they can manage a team, they can you know, put systems in place for the business to run smoothly, and you have somebody who is good at selling, you are, if you do it long enough, you're going to succeed. Beautiful. Rob, this was great to have you and learn from your journey. I enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much for coming on and looking forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I love your pod and uh, forward to staying in touch as well. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share.